1: Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. I'm solo today, but a reminder you can listen to us weekly and you'll catch me and Michael next week on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you think by emailing us at podcasts at coindesk.com subject line money reimagined. It's a big news day, as every day is here in the crypto universe. Uh, Today, we were we woke up to the news that a U.S. court ordered the SEC to vacate its rejection of Grayscale's bid to convert its Bitcoin trust into an ETF. Now, we're not going to get technical about what this exactly means. We'll have an episode on the SEC coming up in a couple of weeks. But the the point here is that the U.S. may be about to get its very first spot Bitcoin ETF. And this is a big deal. Uh, It's a big deal in part because other countries are way ahead of us on this, as they are in many other areas uh, that involve crypto and crypto regulation. But the door is now open for a spot Bitcoin ETF in the United States. Advocates have argued for a long time that this particular type of product would enable a bigger swath of the public to invest in Bitcoin without having to go through the hassle, which it still is a hassle to this day, unfortunately, of buying it directly, um, or of dealing with potential issues like picking the wrong custody provider who may not survive, as an example. The SEC has systematically disapproved every single ETF application that's gotten to date, but a new swath of applicants we expect to kind of burst in and and try to kind of get into this market. I'm joined today by our guest, Alex McDougall, who is the CEO of StableCorp, which is a Canadian-based company that's created the Canadian dollar-backed stablecoin, the first one on the market. Uh, But Alex, I'd love to bring you in today to just chat quickly. You're Canadian and you're HQ'd in Canada. And of course, Canada has had an ETF for quite a long time. In fact, as I recall, we actually had 3IQ CEO Fred on, God, I'm looking this up, two years ago now. So two years ago, Canada already had Bitcoin ETFs, like on the market, how has that developed over the course of time? And what do you make of the fact that we are so late to the game here in the U.S. but finally <laughs> on the scoreboard?
0: <laughs> Absolutely, Sheila. Thanks a ton for having me. Really appreciate it. I'm Always a big fan of the pod. It's such an interesting kind of uh, you know, history repeats itself, right? And and especially now that you know today is not an announcement of a Bitcoin ETF. It's an announcement of a potential undoing of a bad announcement that was a roadblock <laughs> to you know potential. ETF, you know, circle, 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 yep. and you know, that, that's not actually that dissimilar from how the, the Canadian ETFs uh, came about, and and you know you would mentioned Fred Pye and Three IQ, and, and they actually fought a landmark battle with, um, you know, maybe a more of a collaborative Canadian battle uh, with the, uh, <laughs> yes, a mediated experience. battle,
1: <laughs> a friendly a friendly uh, battle, a light, oh, yes. uh, light uh, arm
0: wrestle is. Yes, there it is. Um, with the Ontario Securities Commission back in, in 2019 around their closed-end fund, which was sort of a more public version of, uh, of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, um, traded on the, on the TSX. Uh, but they, they ended up having to go to court and effectively you know, challenge the ruling and, and have their day in court and force the discussion of why this was or was not in the best public interest. And ultimately, you know, 3iQ won. The, the arguments that the regulator put forth weren't necessarily accepted, and 3iQ got to launch their product. Um, and it was really the, the ETFs that, that came about on the heels of that, uh, you know, almost two years later. But that was actually one of the things that caused the grayscale, uh, nav discount in the first place when there was a way to get out of these at, at, uh, at yeah. par. And so I, I feel like that whole sort of launch of the publicly traded funds has been you know, lost to the sands of time a little bit in, in Canada. And we've been chugging along for years with our uh, spot ETFs. Um, and it's really interesting to see, you know, the evolution of, just how highly leveraged this type of news is. I mean, you saw all the reaction in the price, the reaction in the grayscale discount, uh-huh. you know, the reaction in Coinbase stock uh-huh. from just these tiny little bits of news that sort of drip out. And you can tell how important this is to the market.
1: No, definitely. You know, I, I was joking with someone the other day that what, if you were to make sports analogies and compare countries, you know, other countries, almost every other country, It's kind of like big point total because low point totals, but like big point moves, right? So it's more like American football. You get a touchdown, you get, you know, X number of points, right? Or Or you run across the line here. In the U.S., it's like basketball. It's like just two points, two points, two points, two points, right? And it's just like a constant flood of news, all of which is like moving incrementally, 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 you know? And it's, Except it's you so cover exhausting. It
0: like, uh Like soccer, where each two points <laughs> is covered like the most defining thing. That's yeah, ever-
1: there it is, right? Exactly. Those two points are not moving at that because there's so many of them. You know, it goes back and forth and you don't really know who's going to win until the very end, right? Whereas in other sports, it's like you kind of have a sense around halftime of where it's going to go. So look, the excitement never ends. Um, this is definitely a very positive move today on behalf of uh, Bitcoin, certainly. Uh, and again, to your point, you're seeing that in the market already, but also just in general, the idea of being able to offer products that are more geared towards consumers who don't have the ability or the desire or, you know, any any sort of... Um, Whatever, whatever it might be, for whatever reason, don't really want to engage directly with the asset, but want to have access to it. And so that of course is what these markets are about. But yeah, no, everybody. And
0: and I think so much of it is just, you know, we we as digital asset folks spend so much time 10 years down the line in this like cryptopia of, you know, everybody's gonna be on the same standard and we're gonna have all this completely free, you know, money movement around the world. And and so little time necessarily on sort of building the bridges to get there. And Um, You know, obviously the the ETF is sort of wrapping a brand new type of asset in an old type of asset, but I think more more so, and and you see, you you hear critics say that sometimes, but more so it it gives you sort of built in access to traditional types of financial solutions, securities lending, collateralization, where you don't have, you know, with existing custodians, it's all of those sort of bridge building techniques to where, you know, we can build out the user experience to where it's easy to hold. You know native Bitcoin, and we have all of that stuff that, that's built down the line. It really is sort of a bridge backwards to bring people along, as much as it is like, oh, this is how Bitcoin's always going to be—is you know, this, this wrapped Bitcoin in, in ETF. Yeah. But I think yeah. it's, it's super important.
1: If the goal is adoption or engagement, I mean, this is one of the most dramatic moves that could be made forward here in the United States. And again, it's not as if we have to, we're not YOLOing it here. I mean, there are, you know, multiple years, of, not just in Canada, but certainly our neighbor to the north has been engaging in this product offering for, you know, some time, right, at a minimum two years now. So uh, so we have a lot of kind of... Uh, a trajectory of how this might play and how it might go and to your point it's now just kind of like ordinary boring offering in Canada it's not like
0: this sexy pure thing, right it's uh, Armageddon up there Nobody, <laughs> no protection
1: right right so hopefully we will get to a place where this is also very normal and it's just another thing on the market and you can make your choices and you have a panoply of options you know as would be the case okay so thanks for spending some time with me on that today as usual well, we don't always predict when these things happen but it's yeah. so helpful to have, have you on to chat about this and particularly the comparison with Canada. But let's shift gears into what we actually were intending to talk about today, uh, which is, so you recently wrote uh, a post, uh, it's called The Seven Defining Opportunities in On-Chain FX. And Michael and I both found this actually very interesting. And maybe what I'll do is just have you, well, first of all, what I would love to have you do is just explain to our listeners, many of whom are not necessarily sophisticated financial actors, you know what an FX market is, why it matters, uh, and then your observations. And maybe walk us through the the general thesis of your of this of this post, which we'll link to in the show notes.
0: amazing, yeah, absolutely. and And this really came about uh, in in collaboration with you know our partners at Circle uh, with Cumberland, um, who's who's taken a very active position on on non us dollar stable coins uh, and Zodia Markets, uh, who's the exchange uh, that's that's run by Standard Charter. We started to talk about this uh, a little bit more and more. As you know, some of the deeper-seated challenges with stablecoins and global flow of assets became more and more prevalent, I mean, you know, 60% of the global foreign reserves are in US dollars, you know, a number that's slowly uh, de- declining over time. Indeed. But um, you know, 99.9% of the, uh, the global stablecoin dollars are denominated in, in US dollars. There's this natural drift towards sort of a proliferation of currencies around you know, even just the use cases of today within the digital asset land, let alone you know, the use cases of the next billion users and a lot of this you know, payments and international uh, money movements and, and things like that. But the FX market is fascinating. It's sort of like the tectonic plates of finance. Like every, almost every transaction that you do has an FX transaction baked somewhere into it. And whether it's you know, a, a derivative transaction, whether it's actually settled, whether it's through an intermediary like you know, buying a daiquiri in, in Vegas was a, as a Canadian... Or it's you know, these, these gigantic sort of OTC desks that are trading billions of dollars of Japanese yen for Canadian dollars or US dollars. You know, it trades seven and a half trillion dollars a day. It's one of the most liquid, efficient price markets. But there's no central body. There's no exchange. There's no NICE for FX. It's all these sort of mechanisms that have developed over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years um, that makes it this really fascinating centralized market. But we've sort of run into some places where it can no longer evolve with the state of current tra- traditional finance infrastructure. And so a lot of the point of this paper is, okay, where have we run into walls? What have we sort of fake evolved in TradFi? And then where are we really looking like, what can we do with crypto? What can we do with instant settlement? How does sort of T plus zero or T plus instant really change the game? Um, and where doesn't it as well? So that's just as important. Like we, again, the cryptopia side, um, how do we build bridges from today to get there? And that's really sort of the point of the paper.
1: So, foreign exchange markets, FX markets, are already fairly efficient, and they are, to your point, one of the most liquid markets that exist in in the world. Um, but the premise of your paper really is that even in such a market, you can still there are still challenges that exist. There are still challenges in that market, and that blockchain technology and things like stable coins can actually really address some of those challenges and make this already well functioning market even more high functioning. So. A, why is that desirable? Like, why is this an important problem? I guess we're just gonna kind of frame it out there. And second, what are those challenges and how specifically can digital assets and the kind of underlying technology that they're based upon help?
0: Yeah, absolutely. FX is an extremely efficient market in terms of pricing. You know, People have been trying to arbitrage the FX market for years <laughs> and years and years, and they're excellent at doing it on you know, fractions of bits. So setting aside the opportunity and arbitrage as you know, FX moves on chain, which is gonna be you know, generational, it's really efficient if you're actually accessing the core FX market. You know, if you're one of the 70 international FX brokers who has access to the continuously linked settlement system, great. You know, you're, you're settling in as close to real time as possible, which is another you know, challenge. You're paying fractions of a BIP, you know, you're, you're doing great. If, you know, back to my example of me as a Canadian you know, going down to Vegas, I'm not paying fractions of a BIP when I tap my MasterCard. I'm paying, you know, four, five, six percent. And that's because it's so disintermediated and there's no connective fabric between that core underlying market and me as an actual consumer. You know, even when I'm paying cross-border payments to, you know, to settle bills uh, you know, as a small business, I'm still paying 3 or 4 or 5%. And, and that gets even worse when you're looking at you know, students coming to, to Canada to, uh, to, to study abroad, um, trying to set up an international bank account, trying to um, you know, fund, fund tuition or, or things like that with wire payments. You know they're routinely looking in the six, seven, or eight uh, percent plus wire fees, plus time to set up international KYC challenges. It's a very efficient market, except for you know who it's not efficient for, and it's one of the most valuable markets in terms of fees in in the entire world. And the second piece to that, even for those you know incredibly large, sophisticated global enterprises, they're still limited by the banking hours in each country. And so, you know, you have this, this uh, there's, a, there's a chart in the, uh, in the paper, um, you yeah, know, that, that looks like the craziest Gantt chart you've ever seen, which is trying to map the overlaps of like the Japanese banking system and, you know, New York and China and all of these different places. And if you want to send any kind of you know, real-time payments, your window to trigger those is, you know, it could be two in the morning. Like it, it really is challenging from that sort of perspective. And the G20, and the last piece I'll say on this, the G20... Um, identified this as a big problem you know, two or three years ago with extending those banking hours being sort of the number one thing they were focused on. Uh, and then they came out with a report a couple years later that like it would take extreme costs and co- permanently elevated cost bases and you know, a lot of infrastructure and, 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 and. And basically, you know, they threw their hands up and said, we, we, it's really challenging to extend RTGS. And that's some of those walls that we run into today where it works. You know, we've solved settlement risk to a certain extent. Large organizations can get you know, money around in two or three days, potentially. But there's almost a blocker of further evolution. And that's really where blockchain settlement comes in. Because it can be a rip and replace of all of this antiquated you know, cross-border uh, correspondent banking system with you know, a digital wallet that can hold all of these currencies, a public blockchain that can settle and manage the swaps, and then a whole infrastructure of liquidity providers, exchanges, decentralized exchanges that sort of already exists out of the box to manage and replicate a lot of that.
1: So let's specifically talk about the role you see of stablecoin in FX markets in general, but also in real-time settlement, like all, all these different places that you kind of either alluded to or talked about directly.
0: So, I mean, I think stablecoins or you know, digital dollars or whatever, sort of the, the next generation of vernacular That's where uh, we're, we're moving uh, away from the, the stablecoin uh, piece to. <laughs> I mean I actually is that,
1: stable is it a coin you know <laughs>
0: well, and that's maybe a good place to start right because yeah. we we've sort of lumped you know stable coins all in together with the algorithmic ones the crypto collateralized ones the fiat backed ones the gold backed ones yeah and and that's fine as we're creating you know, a, a new um, experiment essentially but you know now that we're ready for prime time with some of these instruments then it, you know there there needs to be sort of a separation between the experimental ones and sort of the you know, the, the ones that are truly ready to evolve and, and you know, reach this global scale. And I think oftentimes we've, we've completely blown the marketing on stable coins where we should have positioned it as you know, this is a better version of PayPal. This is a, a, a fintech evolution instead of, hey, this is a less crazy version of Bitcoin, uh, which is kind of you know, the, 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 the middle ground that we're stuck in today. Don't get me wrong. There's a ton of interesting value in experimenting with new forms of money, new forms of stability, new forms of, you know, decentralized governance for coins, all of that stuff. But there needs to be guardrails around that, just such that it doesn't go to 60 billion and then, you know, down to no billion. Specifically to your point around, um, you know, where stable coins sort of fit in all of this. They effectively give you the ability to leverage these brand new rails that can chop out you know, the trillion dollars of friction costs that sits in our kind of international correspondent banking system today. And so it's our job as, as issuers and also you know, the, the Web3 builders to create all of this connected fabric. It's our job to make as little friction and risk as possible between you know, a Canadian dollar that you're used to and you know, that, that lives in, in a bank or on your debit card or whatever, and a digital representation of that dollar. And so, you know, the global regulatory environment, and this is one of the pieces we talk about in the paper, of, of sort of this, this slow grinding consensus of you know, a, a monoculture on how regulation should fit there, which we're getting towards slowly.
1: Uh, again, it's uh, a lot yeah. of those point layups.
0: <laughs> uh, Europe's getting towards it fast. That's true. We're playing
1: hockey, it. we're playing basketball. <laughs>
0: right. But so yeah, really around sort of d- disclosure, attestations, like all of these pieces that, that really give you comfort that this is a digital representation of a dollar that sits in a financial institution. A lot more disclosures, terms of service, like all, all of those pieces. That's sort of our job as issuers is to create those digital representation. And then it's really up to us as an industry to recreate the the TradFi infrastructure where we still need to manage settlement risks. We still need to have efficient exchanges. We still need to figure out how DEXs work and all of this play that international FX game. And last point I'll make, managing the integration back with the last mile payment rails, I think is where this really meets the road. When you can do international on-chain FX and then load up a prepaid MasterCard and buy my Daiquiri in Vegas, um, and only pay you know five basis points for the FX. That's when you really have something
1: there. I think a lot of times when we talk about things like an FX market, you know, immediately people leap to, well, this is going to only really benefit highly sophisticated trader. To your point, right, like the ones that already actually are have kind of a monopoly on the arbitrage opportunity, right? <laughs> to to put it kind of bluntly. But to your point, this really is something that everyday consumers who are just going across the border and engaging in a transaction could benefit from. In last week's episode, Michael and I, I was ranting about my laptop and and Google and whatnot. So for those who haven't checked it out, it's a relatively entertaining episode from what I'm told. But I was saying that we have all of this, this capture and really what that's based around is this idea that tech is too complicated for lay people to understand, right? Similarly in finance, we have this concept that certain kinds of actions or activities or transactions are just too sophisticated or too complicated for folks to understand when the reality is, it's just about how much money you have. And if you have enough money, it's actually quite easy to do a lot of these things because you have access to certain kinds of interfaces or certain kinds of opportunities that you just don't have if you're at a retail level, which strictly is defined by how much money you have and what architecture you find yourself in. And what I love about the example you just gave is that you're collapsing not just the complexity of it, you're collapsing kind of the delta of the opportunity interface, right? So you're saying, an average person who's not engaging in a multiple, like really high value transaction here, can take advantage of the same kinds of opportunities that these multi-million, billion-dollar, you know, sophisticated kinds of actors can do. And so, the f- sophistication myth. Is something I've always found very troubling about about finance.
0: Love it. And I love the the capture idea as well if we are captured by you know what bracket we're in right now. And you know, you get less captured the more sizable you can go and sort of the lower end of the infrastructure that you go and pushes it all the way to the edge. Yes. You, but the challenge is building that UX infra because I do believe that you know people should need to know how to how uniswap concentrated liquidity works in order to pay their tuition in Canada building that UX infra on top is really hard to do and has been you know, a challenge of the industry for quite a while. You said collapsing, and, and I think that's a, a very good way to, to think about it.
1: Yeah. Well, also, you shouldn't have to be a billionaire to make money. <laughs> you shouldn't have to, have, right? The prerequisite of wealth. Just insert rant that I've done before on the show about accredited <laughs> investors, okay, and my whole rant there, which I hope
0: uh, you're but One, one point. quick point to add on that, Sheila, and, and I think this is, you know, even just the, the core functionality of DEXs in this point is you can now make money on other people trading FX by putting, you know, putting up liquidity to, yeah. to the centralized exchanges. And the other kind of innovation that is traditionally reserved for you know, more sophisticated pieces is building in hedges. So you, yeah. you know, with sort of com- the composable nature of blockchain, you can almost create like you know, a CAD wrapped US dollar. So you can go and access you know, U.S. dollar denominated investments or payments or things like that, but always have it you know, represented in CAD dollars. That's so impossible to do in, you know, in traditional finance. Like You just open up all of this blue ocean of creativity for, for solving problems around the world uh, when you have this, this brand new infrastructure to be able to play with.
1: Yeah. And we talk about democratizing finance as being one of the goals in crypto and digital assets. And here's a great example. Right, Again, it's about... It's about having people understand that sophistication is not so much about your mental or intellectual capacity. It's about the financial architecture you are wealthy enough to opt into and you can recreate that to your point. It doesn't have to be something that's exclusively the provenance of people who are pre-wealthy to gain those kinds of opportunities. I also love there's this concept you have in here, this phrase you use that I loved of quietly important currencies. I loved that. Because a lot of the attention in markets is focused on, you know, the dollar, the yen, the pound, the euro, you know, and for very good reasons. I mean, those are the dominant kind of currencies that are, that are providing stability in the economy. But there was a whole next tier of these, of, as you call them, quietly important currencies. It's a great phrase. Let me talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: absolutely. Well, and obviously, I'm talking, talking my own book and CAD here, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the highest growth international reserve currency of the last 25 years. It's gone from basically zero to, to two and a half percent of the, of the global uh, global reserves. It is the second largest currency outside of the big four, Where there was no currencies outside of the big four. It's only just behind uh, the Chinese yuan. You've seen that in one, obviously Canada is a big a commodities player and there is some value in direct transactions with Canadian currency, but you've also seen it in, in sort of a proliferation of alternate political views on sort of how the geopolitical situation works. Like Canada is a pretty soft power democracy. Yeah. We, <laughs> For for better or for worse in certain times, we have a a very stable banking system, like all all of that stuff. And we've seen nation states be able to sort of vote with their dollars where they want to hold their reserves, but we've never given people the ability to vote with their dollars where they want to hold their reserves, right? Mm -hmm. And people have all the same diversification requirements and all the same diversification needs. We've just never created the ability to scale all the way down to things like that. We have sort of this hack to simplicity of just that you use the U.S. dollar for everything. There's been a bunch of geopolitical reasons why that's happened. And now we have sort of a, you know, a way to, to cut through that simplicity. And if you want to settle a commodities transaction directly in CAD, you know, if it's Japan and, and Canada, there's no reason to necessarily use sort of that, that U.S. dollar nexus. It basically takes off those artificial reasons why you need to use one of those larger global currencies and gives you the ability to transact and hold whatever you want. And certain currencies like CAD that have, despite those sort of restrictions, shown extreme growth globally over the last twenty-five years. You know, I think it's going to be a huge catalyst for use of of that currency globally.
1: Oh, interesting. You know, I think I would be remiss at wearing my now my my CCI hat if I didn't say that we are seeing regulators all around the world really get pretty concrete about stablecoins, specifically, uh, in part because they're recognizing that maybe they are a quietly important currency. Or in the case of the euro, they're a you know a loudly important. I know the opposite is like a loudly important currency, you know, or in the case of the U.S. dollar, a very brash and jingoistic, you know, (laughs) important currency. I mean, whatever it is. But we're seeing, you know, between Mika, between what Singapore is doing with the MAS, uh, the JFSA, you know, even here in the U.S. Congress, although we'll see how those efforts play out. I've said before that I actually think the single most important thing the U.S. could do if, if the concern is really about U.S. dollar dominance, the single most important thing I think the U.S. could do is actually get concrete about stablecoin rules at a federal level, you know, sooner rather than later. But we'll see if that actually plays out. We'll see how other kinds of factors that in the US political environment affect that. I'm gonna to have to wrap us soon, Alex, but anything else that you wanted to kind of spotlight about, about this and thanks for your time today.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's been sort of a no brainer for a while that, you know, FX is the most liquid market in the world. Blockchains can settle instantly. Like why don't cross border payments work on blockchain? Remittances are sort of like a joke word in the blockchain industry. It's so cool to sort of see all of this fabric slowly coming together. And it really is just sort of that, that last UX layer of just making it a complete no-brainer for somebody. Um, and we're yeah. so close to doing all of this stuff and really helping exactly what you said, the democratization of finance and the democratization of payments, taking back a bunch of control for the people who need and deserve it the most.
1: Yeah. Well, you got to build a foundation brick by brick before you can paint the wall, right? And, and to me, painting the wall, offering those color choices is some of what UX is about. But we are getting those bricks. Those bricks are in place. They've been, in many cases, stress tested in other jurisdictions outside the United States simply because of the regulatory welcoming or familiarity that regulators have outside the United States. Nevertheless, the US is benefiting from all of those examples and learning a lot. But US builders are learning a lot also of how to bring things that are already successful in other places. Going back to the beginning of our chat today, you know, spot ETF, right? Like been in Canada for a while, kind of boring now. A lot of lessons learned here in the United States about what that might look like and how to proceed with kind of getting those through the Securities Exchange uh, Commission here. So, yeah, lots more to come. I think every time we get, we see these these bricks start to get more, more concrete, you know, they're building together. They're really building, I think, this bridge that's hopefully going to, to our points today, collapse some of those big, that big divide that exists between the very, very, very wealthy who, A, can take on certain kinds of risks because they can hedge against that and they know what that means, but also have access to certain kinds of interfaces that make that easier. And regular people who are more than capable of understanding and comprehending what those risks are, but have just been waiting for a form factor that actually works for them. And you've given so many examples today. So thank you, Alex McDougall, CEO of StableCorp, for joining us on Money Reimagined. And to all of you who are listening, please join us again next week for another episode. Thanks. You're listening to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Today's show was edited and produced by Michelle Musso. Our theme song is The News Tonight by Shimmer. We would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.